Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome to Making Data Simple. Jumping right in. I appreciate you being here. I have one of my favorite guests. Every guest is favorite, but this one's a little bit special. Lynn Sneed, who is the founder and owner of Talent Evolution Systems. When was the last time you were on, Lynn? Was it three months, two oh, months ago? Maybe October-ish. October-ish. I'm thinking, you know, a few months ago. It's been a so, treat to do this more than once. This is like the third time. You know, if you do five <laughs> times, Kate provides a jacket. You get, <laughs> oh, you know, like Saturday Night Live, you, you get I'm, a jacket. I'm on that. <laughs> I'd love a jacket. All right, there you go. Let me finish my intro. We got to get this right. Lynn is a behavioral consultant, author, trainer, speaker. She does it all. She is a coach that specializes in education, psychology, organizational performance, and is a talent analyst and leadership development coach. The cool thing about Lynn is, and we've talked about this, uh, she may be, may or may not be my coach. You never know. She can predict job performance, fit, success. We have discussions about that quite often. And uh, I don't know, I'll pause there. How are you, Lynn? I am so glad to be back. It is always a treat to have a chance to have a conversation with you, and especially when it's a <laughs> podcast. And I've had multiple careers. And so there's a few years with one, a few years with the other. If you add them all up, they're definitely more than 20 years. Uh, but if you look at just an individual chunk, eh, 15 years might be right. <laughs> <laughs> I know you talked about this in October and surely everybody listened to that podcast, but you know, tell us where you've been and how you got here. Well, it, it was an accidental career. I had an amazing opportunity many years ago and landed uh, in the early days of what was then called Franklin Institute. I was employee number 87 with Franklin Institute, which later became Franklin Quest, which then later became, as many of you probably may know, uh, Franklin Covey. So I did 20 years. Uh, I refer to that as my 20-year undergraduate degree. And I went from employee number 87 to, by the time I was promoted to vice president many years in, I was one of 5,000 employees. So this was mm -hmm. kind of the heyday of Franklin Covey and just amazing background to be steeped in material from not only Stephen Covey Sr., but Stephen M.R. Uh, after the merge was my boss for several years. He's the one who authored Speed of Trust. But Dick Winwood, Hiram Smith, the founders of the Franklin side of the business, they were my bosses, my mentors, my coaches. It was an amazing opportunity for me to, to be exposed to mentors on all sides that have changed my life. I was writing and developing uh, Franklin and Franklin Covey's project management program and did that for 20 years. But I was loving the individual coaching I was doing with those who had just been promoted to project managers, but without a lot of preparation and help from their organization to make that leap from an individual performer to a manager, a leader of others. And so I went back to school, got a graduate degree in corporate coaching, uh, did some overlap work for a few years with Franklin Covey while I did that. But then I started my own business in 2002, got involved with the assessments that I'm doing to this day that are a fascinating look at individuals and their strengths. Uh, many times strengths people don't even realize they have. 
liabilities. How do we counter the liabilities? How do we get the right people in the right jobs? How do we help people progress to the next level of their full potential? And that's the consulting and coaching work I've been doing for the last 20 years. Now, there's some overlap there. I'm not quite that old, but <laughs> I've been at this a while. Well, that means you know what you're doing. That's called wisdom. Uh, you know, wisdom I, I, is when you know that you don't know it all and you still have a lot to learn. See, folks, that's the kind of wisdom she gives me on a regular basis. I could have a full set of tweets just by a 60-minute conversation with, with Lynn. <laughs> hey, I got a pet peeve. and You got to answer this yeah. for me. I need your definition. I've never asked you this before of coach. And here's why. If you go out on LinkedIn today, everybody says they're a coach. You know, I mean, you can get coach this, live coach. Yep. Uh, you know, it's like, I think they're overusing, let's just put it lightly or kindly. They're overusing the term true coach. I mean, that is a a profession uh, that you study for, you train for, et cetera. Could you talk to what your definition is of a coach? Well, you bring up a really good point, Al, because, you know, let's face it, many years ago when we heard the word coach, we always thought of an athletic coach of some kind. We had a, a very narrow view of it. Professional coaching really has not been around that long, and there's many different kinds of professional coaching, and then you get mixed up between the difference between professional coaching or career coaching and life coaching. So the important thing is, is that it, it comes different definitions depending upon what kind of a coach a person is. And coach is a very broad category. I think what's important is that within that category, people define what kind of work they do, what kind of coaching they do, and, and maybe more importantly, what they don't do. I have a graduate degree in corporate coaching. That means I'm not a life coach. It certainly means I'm not an athletic coach. I'm, I'm not a therapist. While certainly most of the focus of the work that I do is professional, you cannot separate the, the professional from the personal. You know, we have one life. But it seems to me there may be some coaches out there, a lot of coaches out there that don't have, uh, you know, a pedigree. They just all of a sudden they put that in their title and off they go, which is. You can uh, actually get a, a weekend certificate in, in life coaching. OK, so, uh, yeah, if you're going to work with a coach, find out. Yeah. What kind of a coach, what kind of training they've had, what kind of experience they've had. That's very important for anybody considering getting a coach. But, you know, coaching is something I recommend for those who take their professions and their careers seriously. Well, to your point, you know, if you, you know, just like it is profound to me that everybody considers like a, an athletic coach. Yeah, that's just par for the course. But when you're in profession, many people, oh, I don't need a coach. I got to figure it out or whatever. We're dealing with a lot of issues in the professional space today, pandemics and all, I mean, coaches is, is certainly uh, something that I think everybody should invest in. Look, I, I've got two of them and the best one sitting right here. Thank you for that endorsement. Cause I, you know, I, you're absolutely right. People take you know, athletic coaching seriously. And, but I, again, I think the corporate coaching is new enough that there's so many people thinking, well, I can figure this out. I, you know, I got this. And there is so much that the average person in business and certainly the leader just doesn't know they don't know yet. Look, I wanted to get you on earlier in the year. I apologize because I think it's always good to start with a coach beginning of the year to kind of set the year. I actually, some people don't do this, but I like to reset, you know, I even have a theme for the year and kind of reset. Where am I going? What does the end of the year look like? So anyway, I'm remiss. We're in February now. But I want to go back to your beginning of the year rituals. 
Do you have any? Do you advise oh, folks to have some? Goodness, yes, absolutely. And I'm going to backtrack on you just a bit and tell you how long I've had them and, and when I learned them, because this was something that was a new thought to me. And I was kind of in the early, early years of my career when the owner and president of the um, engineering firm that I worked for in Provo, Utah at the time, brought Franklin's time management training on board for the executives. And I was one of eight executives. And I went into the seminar that day thinking, you know, what is this? Uh, I'm busy. I need to be back at my desk doing real work. And I came out of a seminar at the end of that day, not having any idea how my life was about to change. But I listened to Hiram Smith that day, take us through the seminar, talk about uh, clarifying our values what they were, what they meant to us, uh, a mission statement, which these days for an individual, I prefer to call a purpose statement. A mission statement, I think, is appropriate for business more so than an individual. And clarifying goals and then handing us a day planner and teaching us how to use it and how to set goals and make a ritual out of it. That was in the 80s, Al. And that ritual and that process has been sacred to me ever since. So at the end of the year, I wrap up my year. I look back at how did I do with the goals and the intentions. I like your word intentions very much uh, that I set last year. What do I want to set for this year? What do I need to improve? Where can I celebrate? I love celebrating. And that, that experience was fascinating for me, Al, because when I wrote down, by, by virtue of being coached by Hiram, how to write down what my guiding values were, I, I remember thinking to myself as I was doing this, I've never given this any thought before. But I started writing and nine things kind of poured out of my fingertips, out of my pen, without me giving much thought about it. And I have to admit, I looked at that list and it was a very humbling moment, very humbling moment, because I remember thinking, well, I just automatically wrote these things down as things that mattered most to me. But these don't bear a lot of resemblance to my life right now. <laughs> I, I was a newly singled mom. Uh, I had had to bail out of college early to get a real job instead of being a um, full-time wife. And it was very humbling but I set about focusing on those values, setting goals to attain those values. I thought they were five-year goals at that time. In about two years, I met all those goals. I changed my life so dramatically that I kind of refer to it as the before and after version of Lynn. But I wrote down what it meant to be a good mom, what it meant to be a good daughter, what it meant to take my career seriously. I wrote down lifelong learning. I wrote integrity health, uh, you know, financial security, all the things that most people would write down. But here I am this many years later in my life, able to look back on what a difference that has made in my life. A couple things on that. One, I was going to give you grief on the day planner. However, you know, because that seems like it's ancient. However, yeah, it does. <laughs> you know what? I went and two of my girls are now using day planners. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> so it's coming back it's, you know what people have realized uh and it does feel ancient a lot of people today think well that was my parents tool i'm you know that's nonsense look the technology has taken over most of that we don't need a paper day planner to do a lot of of what was in the day planner but you know what 
the technology doesn't do all of it. There are certain things, a few important things, like the values tracking and the year to year, that it's easy to, to lose it in some program somewhere. And having that book on your desk can make a big difference for some people. Others are very comfortable with, you know, completely with technology. That day planner in a different form now, you know, we don't need it for the contact list. We don't need it for the calendar. But where do we put our values, our goals, you know, our, our purpose statement? Where, where is all that? Well, I have it printed out right in front of me. That's where I have it. You know what? Good for I, you. you, know, you That's you where were, it should be. <laughs> you were saying all of uh, this stuff. And I, so I went out to my Lynn folder. And I'm looking at my Lynn portal right now. And I got mission statement. I got values. I've got energy. I got vampires. <laughs> I have you know, the perfect job. I have bucket lists. You know, it's a lot of material, but it's all very important. You know, some of it's just getting your thoughts out uh, and, right. and to know yourself a little bit better. I mean, look, maybe other people know themselves better than me, but it helps me. And, you know, I think the number one thing of all those for me, you mentioned it. Uh, I don't know if it's number one for you, but for me is the the value will that I created, the, the, the values. Yes. Because I can tend to not have balance. Let's put it that way. You, you get involved with something right. and you just go crazy on it. And then pretty soon you're out of balance. And guess what's number one on my list? Knowing you, I'm going to guess that family relationships, something about family is number one for you. Family is number one. Family uh -huh. is number one. Good guess. See, you know me well. Well, you know how that helps me is when I'm debating about, oh, I got to do this, but my daughter's got this going on. You know, I literally go back to, hey, family is number one. And you know what? I don't care what it does. I'm going to, I say it's number one. I got to act like it's number one. I'm going to go to her, you know, recital or whatever, you know, tonight. And I'm going to devote the time. And yeah, my theme for the year this year is to be intentional. And I'm going to intentionally be there. You know, I've never felt regret of doing that. And that's what my wife says. You, you, you're ne you never feel bad about doing the right thing. And so it helps me. So well I think said. Well, well said. The writing down our values is you know, I've coached an awful lot of individuals now. It, organizations, they start with a mission. They go to setting strategy. They move from that. They're, there's a little bit more line of sight there than many individuals have. Most individuals, when I ask them, do you have a written purpose statement? Do you have a written statement of your values? They kind of look at me, a little deer in the headlights look. And also, do you have a tool? Do you have a system, a way to track all of that? And system, one of my favorite things to think about with system, you know, a good system saves you serious time, energy, and money. That's what I like to think about when I think of a system. Well, let's and, let's start, let's dive into that system if you don't mind. I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you have something nope, to finish? Nope. I want Kate to chime in here too, because I can tell she gets sick of me rambling off. So she's like ready to jump in. <laughs> but Kate, I'll I'll turn it to you. But I'm thinking we talk about we take what Lynn just said line of sight. I want to talk about mission to completion. Since we're starting the year, uh, I've got a new role 
And you talk about system. I want to put all that together and what recommendations you would provide me in developing that system to get that line of sight and mission to completion. Kate, what did I miss there? Nothing. Well done. <laughs> I am a happy camper now because all that we are talking about is that the organizational process, the system around it, but what we're really talking about at its core is connecting the reason we're here, which whether you're a company or a person is your mission or purpose, to being able to celebrate that at the end of the year, right? right? So that line of sight is so powerful and it helps make the decisions out and the trade-off analysis like you're talking right. about. So yeah, you're exactly right, my friend. I Cheetah. wanted to dive into line of sight. I'll say, I'll you just said mail. something really important, Kate, when you when you brought up the trade-off analysis, because as I talk to organizations about line of sight, one of the things that I've seen, you know, somebody, I mean, for my 20 years with Franklin Covey, I was in and out of a different organization, you know, basically two weeks out of every month, training for two and three days at a time, talking to them about what was fun was talking to them about why do projects fail in your organization? That used to be my lead question when I started a seminar. And boy, was that an earful. And one of the major things that I find in most organizations, and you all tell me if this resonates for you, is that organizations are great about clarifying a mission statement. They're pretty good about coming up with a notebook somewhere, dealing with strategy, and that's about where it falls apart is sometime right after the strategy is set. And one of the main reasons is leaders in organizations are really horrible at saying no to anything. They're trying to say yes to everything. And too many yeses, too many projects leads to the pitfall right at the get-go. You know, projects are resource intensive, resources are limited and when you get multiple sponsors saying yes to multiple projects that require the same resources and those that are leading an organization may not realize that a particular person or particular resource is allocated on multiple projects. And that's largely where it falls apart. Another place where it falls apart is that I'm a believer in people first uh, one of my business partners and I used to call people first PM people first project management. If the people aren't involved in the planning process, they don't buy into it. If they don't buy into it, your project is not going to succeed. So how do we say no to some things and yes to the right things? That means we look at a project in terms of return on investment and available resources. We're very select about what we say yes to. And then before we go any further with scope, scope documents, work breakdown structures, things of this nature, we get the right people involved and let the right people help plan the projects. They're the experts, they're the subject matter experts. They participate. One of my favorite expressions is where there is participation, there is buy-in and buy-in is everything. In a project, buy-in is everything. That's tweetable. So Al, that's your tweet. See, that's I'm just collecting tweets. Right day now. one out of day sixty. But I think to just to summarize for our listeners, when we're talking about line of sight, we're going the the specific kind of chunks or milestones are we go from mission to values, mm -hmm. then to goals, mm -hmm. then to projects, down to processes, down to execution, 
marking it off is done with completion and then we celebrate. So there's very distinct yep. phases that encompass the whole line of sight thinking. And what I thought I heard you say was that where companies really fall down or where there's a lot of opportunity for miscommunication or friction is really from that projects towards completion and celebration because there's a lot of analytics that has to go in there and a lot of choices that have to be made. So sometimes that's where it can get a little tricky for companies and for people, right? You just did a great summary of that whole process. And when you think of strategy and when you look at a year, and, and by the way, we don't want to wait till the end of the year to celebrate. You know, we, we chunk these things down into a quarter and a month and a week, and we should be celebrating regularly. When, when we can look at a project plan and know that we've met a certain milestone this week, the project might not be done for several months, but we have cause to celebrate for every week we can look at it. And everybody in the project knew their part. And they knew it ahead of time and we knew the timeline and we met the commitment. We've met the, the milestones. I love milestones because they're measurable in terms of yes or no. Did we finish or did we not? And we ought to be celebrating all along. And if not, we ought to be scrambling to get back on track. But good scope documents, those are rare in organizations. Leaders who know how to produce a good scope document with key stakeholder buy-in participation and buy-in, that's rare. Good work breakdown structures, which is who will do what, by when, that is rare. And that, for all the work that I did going into organizations to help many times when a project was in trouble, first thing I would ask is, would you please share your scope document with me? And I usually got the deer in the headlights look. Second thing I would ask for is, would you please share your work breakdown structure with me, preferably in the form of a Gantt chart? And often then I would also see the deer in the headlights look. And that's what was fun was spending two and three days with groups where at the end they had all that and they could see the plan for exactly how to proceed with their project. And that's line of sight takes you all the way from that purpose or mission through the values tell you how you operate as you go. Values are something for an individual or an organization it just says, while we're doing whatever we're doing, here's how we agree to behave. Here's what's really important to us. The goals tell us what to do. And sometimes the goal is a project and sometimes it's a process. Talk about some of the tools, though. I mean, I think at high level, people get it, but then putting it into action, that's where they, they begin to falter. And as you're talking to tools that enable this process to, towards success, you got to also tell me why you love Gantt so much. <laughs> That's a great, I love that question, Al. Thank you. I'll tell you, because, you know, I've actually mentioned Gantt charts in organizations that said, oh, we're not allowed to talk Gantt charts in here. And, uh, okay, you know, for years, that was the accepted methodology. And over the last few years, methodologies have changed. Who doesn't want to be agile? I mean, who doesn't want to do all that? But when we lose sight of a basic work breakdown structure, we've set a barrier in our path that's likely to get us in trouble. The reason I love a Gantt chart, it, first of all, when you start working with Gantt charts, it'll teach you more about project management than anything I can think of. It's the best planning tool, first of all, for a project. It then becomes the best communication tool to show everybody 
And this again should have everybody's participation, but here's the project plan, here's who's doing what, when, how long it takes, the dependency between tasks and people. So it becomes the best communication tool and then it becomes the best accountability tool. You know, you can look at the Gantt chart and say, how are you doing, are you on track? Is it gonna end up on time? And it completely puts an end to, oh, I didn't know I was doing that. I thought you were doing that. And it puts an end to, oh, I didn't realize my piece had to be done by then or it was gonna delay the next part of the project. Puts an end to all that. It's all in the Gantt chart. Why do you think it's, uh, you think it's too much work? You know, cause you gotta invest. It's, too, it's, a, it's work, it's work. Gantt charts, um, especially with the software that is used today, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And one of the reasons is people don't have a process to follow to help them do it. Uh, it's not a software that's kind. People who sit down and, and think they're going to figure out how to do this on their own, it can be daunting and frustrating. If you have a process to follow and you break a project down, it's really pretty simple. If you break a project down into, I used to like to call major pieces and minor pieces and then tasks. My business partner used to call them hunks, chunks, and bites. <laughs> you know, the idea is, you know, how do you eat the elephant? You break this thing down first. A lot of people sit down at a Gantt chart and start blasting away a list of tasks. That's very problematic. If you mind map, mind mapping is a phenomenal tool. Learn about mind mapping. If you start mind mapping a project with the right people, it's a matter of, okay, what are the biggest chunks of this project first? They're like mini projects. So you break this thing down into mini projects and then you define the subcomponents of mini projects and then you get to the tasks and you sequence them all and you do all that on the mind map. And then you can click Gantt view on some of the good mind mapping uh, programs or you go from your whiteboard into a Gantt chart. Then that's then it's already sequenced when you put it in the list. So you drop your tasks in in that sequence order already chunked out. And then you figure out the duration on each piece with your experts, with your subject matter experts input. And then with input from your subject matter experts, you clarify the dependencies. What are the tasks that can be done in a parallel form? What tasks really are dependent upon other tasks? There's different kinds of dependencies. That takes a little bit of study, but you know, you can, you, I mean, gosh, you can learn things on YouTube these days that are amazing and classes, learn how to use a Gantt chart. And what you'll find is when you present it to your team, they first kind of look at it like, oh my gosh, what is this? And 10 minutes later, they're going, oh, I get it, I see it. I see my part, I see where my part fits the big picture, thank you. So, so you just kind of have to help people through that initial awkward stage. My process kind of aligns with what you said, it's not perfect. Um, by the way, I got help with Gantt. Uh, if I didn't have help, I'd probably struggle. But, well, the one thing that I didn't know that, uh, that really helped me is the mind map to Gantt. I've always done mind maps. But some of the mind map software now has a conversion to Gantt. Yes. It's a little bit of a cheat in how to get there more quickly. And I think it's, it's kind of brilliant. It's a brilliant cheat. Yeah. My process has been... It's not a cheat. It's a 
my daughter. Okay, would that's take, a better term. My daughter yeah. would take an exception to that. It's a hack. It's, it's not a hack. A cheat. I, I think that's a good point. Okay. It's a hack. No, I think that's a good point. It feels like it's cheating because anytime we shortcut and make suddenly something that was so difficult becomes so easy, you, you kind of feel like you're cheating. But you're right. I like no, more cheat. Make you feel like good. you're a little naughty, but you're still getting the out. <laughs> okay. I like it. I think I, that's I where I was coming context. from. Now. We're cheating then. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> My process has been to, uh, and I've, I've learned this over time now, certainly I have help, so that's a benefit, but to draw like a, a press release of where you want to be by the end of the year. And, you know, this is both personally, but I'm, I'm, in this context, I'm talking business-wise. You put a press release out there and even to the point of like you're writing it, like it's today, you put a quote or you do whatever, you had a full press release. Then you say, all right, that's where I want to be. Then you uh, create, and I do this every year. I've always done this every year. I, I, have, I haven't done the press release uh, as much as this, and now I do this. But I bring it back, and I do kind of a manifesto, like a strategy, where I want to be, first steps, etc. Then you put it into that mind map, and once you get that organized, then you can get to Gantt, and you got a project plan. Uh, now, look, like I said, I have help. I'm not great at all that that stuff, but I do think it's a hell of a process to be able to take where you want to end up, start with the outcome in mind, have that manifesto so people have context yep. with your vision, and then ultimately get that into a, a project plan where people know their responsibilities and what they have to deliver by when. And you revisit that on a quarterly basis. And that is such a critical piece is making it clear for everybody. So everyone knows their parts. They know what they're held accountable for. That's one of the key factors in engagement is when you ask an employee, do you know what's expected of you and whether or not they can answer yes or no is a key factor in engagement. The, the review meetings, I used to call them regularly scheduled review meetings and a quarterly meeting is important, but for projects, many times, depending upon the length of time and the complexity of a project, you know, these are weekly meetings. These are every other week. These are, you know, quarterly is great for your strategic planning. I got a lot of, of uh, insight out of the book, um, was it Scaling Up? It's one I mentioned. Yeah, Scaling Up. Um, Vern Harnish talks about separating your strategy meetings from other meetings so that the strategy is looking forward, way forward, to your long-term goals. And then as a leader in an organization, you might be thinking, what do we want? for our organization 20 years out. But the projects we're working on are this year. So for this year, we're thinking quarterly, we're thinking weekly, but having that long-term line of sight to that 20-year mission orientation is an important part of the line of sight, but we've got to back it up to where every individual in the organization knows and can answer the questions, what do I need to do today? And why? And why does it make a difference to the organization? I don't care if your responsibility is emptying the trash at night. It's important to know that your part matters and where it fits in the big picture. Agree. Look, I think the best leaders that I've seen do two things great. This may be obvious, but most people don't do it. One, they read a lot. They read yes. a lot. Like, and look, I've had a lot of people say, oh, you know, I just use uh, Cliff Notes or this. Come on. Uh, so they read a lot and secondly they make time to think 
Yes. Yeah. I know that sounds like profoundly simple, but they honestly well, don't do it. Uh, it's amazing to me um, the conversations I've had in, in classes, especially when I say, you know, what are the best books that you've read that are, you know, within the last couple of years? And I don't see hands go up. And uh, one of the things I learned early in my career, because as I mentioned before, I kind of had to get out of, out of college early before I had a chance to go back later. And one of the things I realized is that I was competing uh, rather easily, actually, uh, with people that had master's degrees in business, and I didn't. But I never stopped reading, and they stopped reading the day they got out of college. And another thing I love about Scaling Up is he talks about reading for success, and he's got some great examples of people who have made reading for success uh, a really famous uh, habit and concept. Uh, another great book, by the way, is Atomic Habits. These things are habits and reading, learning from the masters. You know, if we think we're going to learn things by figuring it out on our own and learning things the hard way, if we want to be successful in professional careers, that's not a good way to go about it. If we want to be successful in career professions, we got to learn from the masters. And I have gotten into the habit lately. This has been helpful for me. It might be helpful for, for others. Finding time to read is, is challenging. I always have one book on audio that I can listen to. I can get jump in the car. You know, you plug in your iPhone, your whatever phone to your car these days. You hit, you hit play on your audio book and boom, you're listening. But I also have a, um, an ebook format on my phone. So if I'm sitting in a waiting room somewhere and listening isn't quite convenient, I've got something on my phone that I can start reading right away. So I've got two books going at all times. One on audio, one on ebook, and wherever I am that I've got a minute, I'm listening or reading. And I tell people when I'm interviewing potential coaching clients, if you don't like to read, I am probably not your coach. Because one of the first things I'm going to be talking about is a lengthy book list and things that will help you change your life. It's worth the read. Look, I, I'm with you. I don't think there's any excuse not to read these days. And I do a lot of reading audiobook. If, and that, look, to me, that counts. Mm-hmm. Of uh, course it does. I do it two or three times. And that way, you know, yeah. the cool thing is, is you, you kind of give yourself excuse to work out or something because, hey, you can still read. There's, right. there's different things. There's many times I'm jogging on the trail and then all of a sudden something will hit me because I'm listening. I'm probably the guy that everybody's looking at because I stop. I'm thinking. <laughs> And, and I'm usually jotting something down like a note because I want to have it for, for later. That happens all the time. But I don't know that you ever read enough. But the one thing I've noticed, if I'm reading a lot and consuming a lot, the way I know it, and I feel pretty good about it, is I start seeing leaders, other leaders in other parts of the business doing a pitch or whatever, and they say something that I've read about. You yes. know, I mean, I'll be sitting there and I'll be like, oh, I read that too. Yeah. They're taking it almost mm-hmm. like it's theirs and say, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's the steps. And I'm like, yeah, I read that. It happens to me all the time. Yeah. It, that's how I think, you know, you're reading enough, or at least, you, like I said, yeah. you never read enough, but then you like, you could feel, you know, to your point, it's like, it isn't magic. Most of these people aren't smarter than anybody else, but they're learning. They're cheating. They studied more. Right? They're, they're it, studied it's a more, cheat. Yeah. Yeah, because they study from other people and they can take, hey, yeah, that's a great idea. You've already done this. I'm going to leverage what you've done for 20 years, read it in right. a book, 
and then I'm going to execute it in, you know, the next two weeks. And that's exactly it, Alan. That's, I think, the point a lot of people miss about a book is whoever wrote that book, they spent years mastering the material and probably a few years writing about it. And we can literally devour it in a few hours. That's amazing when you realize that you're taking someone's lifelong study and learning, you know, maybe not learning it to the degree that they have mastered it, but you're certainly learning a chunk of it. I don't know if too many, I can't name a leader that isn't well-read. Hey, moving on, let me ask a question. This is where I struggle. Uh, and Because I, I want to dive down a little bit further is how you prioritize. So as you're thinking about your answer, the issue that I think, I don't know, maybe A-type personalities have is, you know, you can do everything. Because everything needs to be done. And you think you can do everything. You think you can do everything. And you put it on the list. Oh, we can do it. We can do it. And uh, I know Kate's smirking because I have a problem. (laughs) I'll I'll admit I need to go get help. But I mean, it's kind of, that's also probably who I am, but it's also, I I, I do want to prioritize better so that we can get more done. I mean, it's like almost a slow down to speed up mentality. Right. It's like the way I am. It's like, I've got this, and I was telling you about this, I've got this pinched nerve in my neck and I haven't healed yet, but I already started working out again. And my wife is just yelling Mm. at me, wait, wait, slow down. I am not meant to slow down. I don't know. And I know I'm probably making it worse. So now I'm, I'm taking her advice, but how do you prioritize in business? I have the same issue. This is one of the critical things that, you know, and you said something very important. You said, it's just me. We have different styles. We have different behavioral styles. We have different motivation styles that leads us to do things in a different way. Certain ones of us are, you know, we like shiny new objects and we can jump on those pretty quickly. And other people really think about it, process it carefully, think about it. You know, what what's the best benefit? What's the best use of my time right now? Is that going to be the best thing to do? Some of us don't think about it. We just dive in. Knowing our styles, knowing our personal behavioral styles, that's an important part of helping ourselves as we learn to prioritize. Because how we prioritize is going to have a lot to do with our individual styles. Is that making sense? It's making sense. So tell me how I solve it. (laughs) (laughs) In true to our style, all that stuff. Give me the solution. That's all I want. Tell me. Okay. So, you know, individuals are really not very different than organizations. When I said a little bit ago, organizations have a nasty habit, or I'll call it a troublesome habit, of saying yes to too many things. And then the resources are diluted and morale is down and the results aren't what we wanted because people are, you know, they've been given 20 assignments at one time. Well, we're no different. If we say yes to too many things at one time, we are diluting our effectiveness. So that line of sight has to help us prioritize based on our goals, our our mission, our goals, and our values. You said to me, your first value was family. Well, and what we have to do, and this is the reason the values wheel that you talked about is helpful, is putting each of those kind of on a point of a wheel so it looks a little bit like a, a wagon wheel. And you can score your values and how you're doing on each one on, on a one to 10. And suddenly you'll see where the flat side of the wheel is. Balancing is one of the toughest things that we do. And when we look at 
our values wheel and we realize, uh-oh, I've got a few sides over here, a few points that I haven't been paying enough attention to, then we see it's out of balance and we have to look at how we're prioritizing things. So we have to realize that when we say yes to something, we're saying no to other things. We're clearing space for the thing that we said yes to. Are we saying yes to the right things? That's easier said than done, though. Is that why you're such a huge proponent of Gantt chart? Because when you start going through the Gantt, which makes it hard, is part of the Gantt is A needs to be completed before B, and you start lining things up from that standpoint. That is one of the reasons I am a fan of Gantt charts, but we also have to remember that what a Gantt chart does not do is it doesn't clarify scope. We had to clarify scope before we got to the Gantt chart. And, and we love to forget that part and just go right for the Gantt chart. <laughs> it's rarely very successful. What needed to happen before the scope is that we needed to look at a, a proposal for a project, whether it's a personal idea or, or an assignment uh, from an organization. We need to look at that and say, what's the return on investment from this project? And what are the required resources for this project? And are they available? So it's return on investment and available resources. And then we need to say, is this a yes or a no? Is this the right project at the right time? And then we can look at sequencing. We, we might be able to say yes to five things. We just can't say yes to five things at one time. We can say, okay, this is first, this is second, this is third, this is fourth. Okay, fourth and fifth, those are small. I can maybe you know balance those out and do those at the same time. But the sequencing is important prioritization, we can't prioritize if we don't have values. How does it fulfill the mission? Hopefully we can look at everything we're doing on a daily basis. And when we ask ourselves, is this helping me fulfill my mission in life or my purpose in life? If we can't answer yes, we're working on something we shouldn't be working on. What's your advice, Case? Shoot it to me. Two or three questions about the task that is facing me to prioritize. Does it need to be done at all? And that goes back to aligning to the mission. Does it need to be done right now? And that can help put it in perspective, which goes back to the mission, right? So that's that line of sight. Does it actually need to be done? Does it need to be done right now? And then for me, which is going to be probably hugely unpopular is how well does it need to be done or AKA, is there a phased approach? Will it advance to my goal of the mission if I complete a chunk of this now versus completing the whole thing? And so how does that allow me to slot it into the priorities? Now that's kind of from a business perspective. You know me, I've said this ad nauseum from a personal perspective, it's family health wealth. So when I have to make a trade-off, if I don't have enough hours in the day, if it's not going into the family bucket, then it's pretty, or the health bucket, those top two. If it's in the third bucket, which is where work falls, that's probably gonna be most of the time I'm going to prioritize over family and health first. But again, that's a mission values kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, I go through a process of asking myself a question. Do I have to do it? Is it germane and relevant? Does it have to be done right now? Is there a piece of it that can be done right now? And then the last thing, which I think is an element for type A is going to your point, Al, (laughs) is that it's really... It feels so good to be the person who says, I got that done. 
And for me as a leader, reframing that into, I can help somebody else being successful by giving them a chance to do it and being okay with that. So reframing my expectations of me getting everything done is hugely powerful because my bandwidth can increase for the skill that I am building, which is to help the organization or my life or my family get along from a different lens. Does that mean that I have to do everything or does that mean that I can get a system, a mission, a line of sight to help other people get it done and give them a chance to grow and and leapfrog me? That's my point. But, but how do you inhibit yourself from being lazy? Because does it have to be done right now? Well, maybe tomorrow. Maybe maybe the next day. When, when have you ever? Here's the way I am. And this is no joke. I look at it and I say, oh, my, I want to add a, yeah. a basement addition to my uh, in my basement. So I'll have two hours free. I'll go to Home Depot. <laughs> We'll get the wood, throw it in, in the basement and go, now it has to be done right now because I got wood everywhere. That's a style thing. That's why the style, style is probably never going to have a problem with putting things off, right? <laughs> so that's where knowing your style is so powerful. A person with that kind of style who says yes to everything is probably not going to have the challenge of being quote unquote lazy. Well, probably true. The style thing is important. And Kate, as you said, and you've really got this down with those questions, the system thing is so important. Having uh, organizations have systems, that's kind of automatic. But for individuals to think of having personal systems, that's a little bit different for a lot of people. And creating those systems, often those systems are born from our awareness of our values. And often it's one of the reasons I like Atomic Habits so much. I have to tell you, when I started reading Atomic Habits, I, it was highly recommended to me and I kind of resisted a bit because, you know, come on, 20 years with Franklin Covey, I hadn't heard enough about habits. You know, I, I didn't think anybody could teach me too much about habits. And I was only a few pages into Atomic Habits before I realized I had a lot I could learn about building new good habits. And and it's been a a delightful read. But that's about creating personal systems for ourselves, getting rid of the ones that don't work well, uh, which is saying yes to everything. And knowing our style, you know, some people are prone to that. Others are prone to, you know, hey, I got a comfy sofa to look at. I'm, you know, I'm not starting anything right now. That sofa's calling me. So that's a style issue. Knowing our style really helps. And then having systems uh, the systems that are based on on furthering our values. One thing I've had to, I guess, there, there's no figuring it out for me. In other words, you got to keep reinventing your systems. Like you say, you're still reading the book. You just read uh, Atomic Habits again. So I've come to the conclusion that it's actually healthy to c- continue to reinvent yourself, you know, it, over and yes. over. You see it the same way? That's why we do what we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, somebody that doesn't want to reinvent themselves isn't striving they're not listening to your podcast they're not striving <laughs> yeah. to do more and be more emphasis on be more um, but a lot of times we get that by doing more so we don't want to get into the doing all the time mode it really is more about being okay. uh, but who do we want to be and, and kate i love that you talked about which is something we don't touch upon enough the delegation part what part do you actually have to do because nobody else can do what you do 
and what part can someone else do and what part can you actually help train someone else to do? And we do want to help our people leapfrog us. Yes. As leaders, we don't want to be afraid of hiring somebody smarter than us. I want to be surrounded by people who are smarter. I hope they stick with me for a while. But hey, that makes us all look good. And, and that means we've got results we can celebrate on a regular basis. I don't ever want to be afraid of somebody. I haven't had anybody that worked for me in a, in a capacity where I had a lot of employees since my Franklin Covey days. But I don't ever want to be afraid uh, or have an ego so big that, that I don't want somebody on my team to be really smart. And like to that point about reinvention, Al, turkeys are done. You cook a turkey till it is done. Humans are being and doing and constantly changing, right? <laughs> Complete a recipe, you Another do tweet. a Home Depot remodeling project, right? You do the things and they get done. But we are constantly dynamic beings. And I would challenge you to find somebody who has ever figured it out, who, who has ever been so static for so long. Right? What leaders? What are the what are the mentors? The best biographies that we read are the lightning bolt ones, right? It's not just this stratospheric arc. It's like, oh, they did the things and then they failed, and then they did the things again, and then they had a setback, and they constantly had to grow, to evolve, and and achieve where we see them at different points that are guideposts and opportunities for us right. to strive to, right? Right. They learned from their setbacks and they kept going anyway. They didn't let it stop them. I mean, that's a Brene Brown being in the arena, just putting yourself out there and yep. you're going to lose a lot, a lot. That's the Michael Jordan quote. I missed so many X number of uh, game tying or game winning uh, baskets, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Anyway, I'm with you. Like your core is your core. And that is the amazingness that is our human. But you can constantly reinvent new skills and systems and ways of being and opportunities for right. growth to get you oh, to. Your, I think a lot of goals. people don't like to reinvent. I mean, we are, I think, are, are naturally resistant to change. And the folks that uh, do separate themselves are what I call, they just show up. They continue to reinvent themselves. Absolutely. They're not afraid, afraid of feel, uh, afraid Again, of though, the resistance is a style issue. There's one of the primary styles, one of the four. There's four, four primary styles. We are all combinations of the four. It's not a yes or no thing, and we're not just one of the four. We're a combination of all four. But one of the styles has a, a nat just a natural inherent resistance to change. It's a little bit harder for them. And then a couple of the styles are all about change, all about entrepreneurial spirit and new things and latest, greatest ideas. So again, knowing our style and each style plays an important part. The important thing when you, when you start studying the styles, we realize there's no such thing as good styles and bad styles. All styles are good in their right place. And we need a combination of the styles working together. And that's something that, you know, from the selection side of my business, we help companies to get the right people in the right jobs more often. Pardon the expression, but so that it's not just a crapshoot. But we, we want to match the right people to the right position that they're in. Because people who are cautious about change, they are important in certain roles. Other people who are very courageous and brave about change, that's important in other roles. We need it all. Here's one question I want to ask you before you break. We could go on forever. I appreciate your time. And that is, you talk My about pleasure. the styles. 
what's the cheat? Kate loves it, so I'm gonna keep using it. What's the cheat <laughs> to align different styles and strengths? Because you're absolutely right. Everybody's different. They fit together. We often put people in the wrong places just because, you know, maybe they do show up and say, hey, well, they did this, they can do that too. And it's sometimes a terrible fit. How do you find the right styles to match the strengths or the opportunity that the business is providing for you? That's a critical discussion. It's a big discussion. It doesn't have a quick answer. Dang it. But we, I know, I know. But here, what's, what's important is what you just said. You know, we often just kind of uh, put a person in a role because the person's available and the role needs a body. And that's the worst thing we can do. We really need to look at understanding styles better. We have so many assessments now that are available. Assessments have come so far in the last few years, and there's there's lots of bad ones. But there are good ones that are valid and approved for hiring and for selection and development that help us uh, literally give the assessment to a role first. It's like it's like giving a, an assessment to the job and saying, who's the ideal person and style for this job? And then we can run an assessment on the person and literally match them up. And you know what is fascinating is when you get the right person, the right job, honestly, you show them the line of sight and let them go and get out of their way, help them when they need some help. But it's they're, they're doing what they love doing. And when we love what we're doing, we're good at it. And when we're doing something we're not quite meant to do, we struggle. And we haven't talked enough yet about this could be a whole other session. Good leaders, leadership, those who coach and mentor and encourage and are inclusive versus the others who have forgotten that it is about people and nurturing people and bringing the best out of people. We've got so many leaders that think carrying a big stick is the way to be boss. And I'm sorry, I, you know, I, I just hope we've grown out of that by now. But mentoring and, and nurturing and encouraging people. Uh, and granted, you know, there's times that we have to realize somebody's in the wrong position. We need to help them find a better spot one way or another. I think but, now we could bring it back. It's all about the data. Yeah, there it was. So people, people and data. We're going to have to have Lynn back. Uh, she's got to get that jacket. I'm going for the jacket. <laughs> I'm going for the jacket. But people and data, you know, yep. looking at styles, helping someone see their strength and helping someone see that there are liabilities that uh, I, I differentiate between weakness and liability. A weakness, you know, we all have weaknesses. As long as you don't need that for the, for the role you're in, who cares? You know, I, I like to say, so what? And who cares? But if you have a particular thing on your list of weaknesses that happens to be relevant to your role, all right, let's talk about how we get better at that because we can. So give us a preview for the next session then. Why is data so important? Why can't I use my natural instinct to be able to say, Kate is perfect for this role. We're going to put her in CEO, get it done. Well, when you look at the success rate, (laughs) but that happens, that's what's happening today in like 90% of the decisions. So why do we need to look at data? All you need to do is look at organizations success rate around hiring and then look at fully burdened cost of turnover. Look at those two things. And there's the answer to your question. 
Most organizations, uh, especially when they're hiring leaders, 18 months later, they're not there because it was not a good hire. And when you look at the fact that the uh, this is this is a vast continuum, but the turnover costs, and by fully burden, I mean you've put every number in it you can think of to calculate in it, which you know HR department isn't going to do. It's 125% to 900% of the average annual salary of a person. 125% is a hamburger flipper. You know they can they can be hired and on the job, running proficiently pretty quickly. 900% is a knowledge worker in an organization that's been there for a long time. And when they walk out the door, there's intellectual property that goes out in their brain that you'll never recoup. So a C-level employee, uh, an IT specialist, you know, it, it, when you lose them because lack of engagement, didn't treat them well, somebody made them a better offer, whatever reason, it's 900% of their average annual salary that it's going to cost you to lose that person. And when you match that up to the high rate of, of hiring failure, yeah, we should be looking at some data. <laughs> Makes sense. There's your preview, folks. Lynn Sneed, founder and owner of Talent Evolution Systems. We'll put some links in there for your uh, company, Lynn. Kate, Lynn, any last words? I'll give you the last words. Kate? Thanks. Always a pleasure. Love the debate. Love the conversation. Looking forward to next time. Thank you. I love the conversation with both of you, too. It's a pleasure and going for the jacket. All right. Hey, it's, it is a pleasure talking with you, Lynn. Thank you so much. And thank you all for Welcome. listening. Thank you. Hit us at almartintalksdata at gmail.com. You know, we listen, you know, and please rate us on your favorite podcast of choice. Until then, I'll see you on the podcast. See you all. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.